0: May God bless his word to us. Chapter 18, verse 1 to 14. At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone can, one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and thrown into eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost."
1: Well, who are the great ones in our society? It depends who you ask, doesn't it? I mean, as many people as are here could all have a list, a different list, of who they think are the great ones in the world. In the world of boxing, Uh, you might recall a little jingle about flying like a butterfly and stinging like a bee. And uh, Muhammad Ali would have us believe that he was one of the great ones. But in Australia, uh, if we were to ask Anthony the man Mundine, I reckon he'd be the first to tell us, wouldn't he? He'd say, I'm the greatest. That'd be his style. Well, what about when it comes to things like brains? Who is on your mind when you think about the brightest people in the world? Albert Einstein, maybe Stephen hawkings They'd have to be some of the greats. As for money, uh, it'd be hard to go past good old billionaire Bill, uh, the world's richest man. He'd have to be on most people's list on the finance front. But in Australia, maybe guys like Lachlan Murdoch or James Packer could get there. And as for beauty... I've noticed that even after uh, a few years have gone since Elle McPherson's supermodeling career is over, uh, she still makes it into the newspapers, if you noticed that, wearing straw hats and things. Elle's still there. The body, 20 years later, she's still one of the greats. Well, it seems that greatness in the eyes of the world is bound up with success and power and influence. And many people in our society live in great fear and reverence of the clever people and the powerful people. And they're intimidated by them. That was true in Jesus' day and it's true in our day as well. And it's fascinating to see that even in a passage like we've got today that the disciples of Jesus, who you wouldn't think would be worried about issues like greatness, greatness is something that they're interested in. We see that in chapter 18, verse 1, if you're following on in the text. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, why did this issue come up? What's been going through their minds that they should even start to raise the topic of who's great when it comes to following Jesus? Well, I know that in a couple of passages just before, Jesus has been talking about the kings of the earth and who it is that they tax. And he's also reminded the disciples that he is God's king, he is the king, the Messiah, and that he's about to go away and die. And the disciples are struck by grief. They start to sink in. It starts to sink in that Jesus isn't always going to be here. And so it seems to me that they're probably looking at each other and thinking, well... If the kingdom's coming and he's going, well then, what would you be asking? Who's next? Who's going to lead this group? And so this becomes an opportunity for Jesus to talk to them about greatness as God values it. In the first place, Jesus tells them that they've got to change their mind. The word here about changing isn't just about, you know, turning one way, it's actually an inward change. We might talk about even being converted. They have to turn themselves inside out or turn back to front in the way that they're thinking about greatness, in their attitude to greatness. We see that in eighteen verses two and three. He called a little child and had him stand among them. It's actually not him in the Greek. It doesn't I'll come back to that. But he had him stand among them, or it. And he said i tell you the truth unless you change and become like little children you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven now the disciples lived in a world where people uh, were born in a certain social status and they more often than not died in that same class within their society Uh, there's little room in our society for upward mobility but in that society you couldn't really marry people in in higher classes and things like that. And if you were a slave, it was very hard to lose that stigma, uh, even if you somehow got out of it. And so in this context, the disciples are thinking about greatness like people who are senators, who had plenty of money, were well-dressed, and were in charge of thousands of troops. But Jesus is saying, if you're starting at that end, you're thinking the wrong way about greatness. This is what he says in 18, verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the word we've got here that's talking about humbling is probably better translated: whoever takes the lowly position of a child. When we think about humbling ourselves, we're not often thinking about a personal characteristic of, you know, being humble in our disposition but what Jesus is really saying is if you want to be great in God's kingdom you've got to take a lowly position and I think that fact is reinforced by the logic that children are not always the most humble people I don't know if you've ever noticed that little dizzies like I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal kind of remind us that they're not thinking always about the other people Uh, at our place they talk about I'm the leader I'm the leader And their first words are often things like, mine. You heard that? So I don't think kids are always the most humble, but they certainly are in a lowly position in terms of control. Even in our society, children don't control the family's income and how it's spent. Although there might be some exceptions to that rule. Schooling is certainly compulsory for kids. And if they decide to leave home, homelessness is going to be a big issue for them. Legally, children are not allowed to drive. They might practice driving on family farms and things like that, but legally, they're not allowed to drive. And children can't organise a branch stack and get politically active because they can't vote. And so they're powerless on that front as well. The fact is, children are very dependent And that seems to be the point that Jesus is driving at here in this passage. Greatness, as far as God's concerned, is not bound up with being someone who's living independent of God and going it alone like a solo man. Greatness seems to be bound up with someone who's living in dependence on God. People can never make it on their own and think that they're going to be good enough for God with their life's achievements will never be good enough for God because God is holy, he's not like us. And all the good things that we do can't make up for the wickedness and the lives that we've lived where we haven't always loved God as we should. But in God's reign as king, we're told here in this passage that being dependent upon God, that is the key to greatness. And it's not simply a matter of just acknowledging that God is there, it's a It's a living trust and a reliance on the work of Jesus, relying on the one that God sent into the world to die and rise for our sins. And so greatness in God's kingdom is bound up with submitting to Jesus as Lord and living with him as our king. And there's also some very good news that actually follows on for us uh, as we think about these things and we think about who we are in this society and the world that God's placed us. Because God's word's reminding us that true greatness isn't bound up with whether we can hit a cricket ball out of a park, a grandstand or not, and put it in the car park, like Andrew Simons can do. True greatness isn't bound up with whether we can kick a piece of leather that is shaped like an egg through some sticks, like AFL player Ben Cousins can do. The Bible's telling us that we've got to liberate ourselves from the world's view, that we are only someone if we can perform some function. We've got to resist that mechanical view of people, the, the view that says you are only what you can do, like a machine. And when you can no longer do it, you're worthless, so you can go on the scrap heap, because our society's got no use for you anymore. The Bible's view is telling us that we've got to think of ourselves in terms of our relationship with God, rather than just the function that we can perform into society, And so although our technicalized, specialised society might say that you are only valuable if you can do what you can do, we've got to remember that we are valuable in relation to God. And true greatness is actually found by having life with God, being right with God, being one of his people. And so the challenging question for us remains today How do we stand in relation to God? Are we putting our trust in our living Lord God or are we putting our trust in ourselves? If the answer is I'm putting my trust in myself, well, the only good news is that while there's life, there's hope. There's still possibility. While there's life, you've still got a chance to enjoy the path of faith in Christ and turning away from sin and putting your trust in God even now. Well, Jesus moves from talking about the child's lowly position to talk about how we should regard children. But not just children, other lowly people, people of low position as well. And the next point is that we should actually care for the little ones. In the first place, we should welcome them. We see that in chapter 18, verse 5, which says, Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. And so what Jesus is saying here is if you're you're welcoming the kid in my name, it's like you're welcoming me. And so for someone whose status was very low, Jesus is raising it up. He's saying, you don't think they're important? Well, it's like you're welcoming me. That's very important. Even today as we um, baptise little Annalise Morton, we're saying that we should treat her as one with great significance. She's not marginalised in this community. She's at the very centre of it. She's very important growing up as a little kid in one of God's families. And we trust that she'll continue to press on with her own childlike faith, which will grow into an adult faith. And so greatness in God's kingdom is bound up with welcoming these little kids, welcoming the lowly. Secondly, greatness is bound up with making sure that we don't cause them to stumble in their walk with Jesus. And we see this in verse 6. But if anyone causes one of these little ones in, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus is telling us that there are some things which are preferable to causing one of these little ones to stumble. And that is a quick drowning. And a millstone tied around your neck, the the sort that a donkey might pull around and mash up some grain, uh, would certainly do the trick. And it seems the main point here is that uh, we actually have power. We've got power to do either good or evil. By our words, we can either build up or cut down. We have an influence on the people around us and we can either cause them to stay on the straight and narrow or have big problems and stumble. I first really only came to terms with this when I was a teenager and I used to um, drive back and forwards from Sydney uh, in my brummy old Datsun stanza and uh, I'd have a few mates who'd kind of bum a ride and get a pretty cheap lift. And uh, one of the guys I gave a ride to was a guy that I used to ride skateboards with and play a bit of basketball with and in those days he was on fire for the Lord whatever that means, or he was full-on for Jesus. And I was pretty zealous too. But during uh, one of my trips, I would realised that things weren't really going that well with his walk with the Lord at that time. And you could see it in his eyes and he wasn't, he wasn't really humming along. And so I asked him a bit about, you know, how he's going with God and that kind of thing. Uh, but he told me that he got disillusioned in life. Things got complicated in his family and one day when he went home he found his father in a situation with a woman that wasn't his mother and it discouraged him, particularly when their marriage broke apart after that incident. And this guy who was once full on for the Lord was really shaken uh, in his Christian walk. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here is we can actually have an impact on the people around us. And so the question should become for us, how can we make sure that we don't cause the little ones to trip up? Well, it's within that context that Jesus starts to talk about cutting sin out of our lives, and I'll pick that up from verse seven. "Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin." Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell the point here is Jesus saying indulging in sin or living in sin is dangerous and it leads to life without God the place where God is not which is described as hell like the garbage dumps outside Jerusalem, Gehenna where the fires didn't go out Jesus isn't really telling us to go and hack up our bodies as though that's going to solve the problem. But he's really using graphic language here, isn't he, to get our attention, to say that living in sin is a serious business. Take coveting, for example. I've noticed that in advertisements in newspapers to get people to uh, gamble, there's also a number that people can phone about gambling problems. And that's because we're not created simply as logical beings who are rational through and through, that we're somehow not affected in our emotions. The reality is that God has created us to be emotional beings and some things get us excited. And certainly the opportunity to win somebody else's money with perhaps not spending too much of my own could get lots of people very excited. And so they can get hooked on coveting and gambling But we don't have to let the things that get us excited be the things that dominate our lives. Things like lust or greed or malice or boasting. These things don't have to be the tail that wags the dog that dominates us. Instead, we can actually work at changing. We can see some of those wicked things for what they do to us and we can actually make a change and turn away from them, turn back to God and live his way. Greatness under God means that we should be waging war against sin, like a knight that might be wearing shining armour and taking up a sword to fight off the enemy. That's the kind of battle that we're engaged in, not to indulge in sin and live in it, but to see it for what it is and to repent from it. That's the challenge. Particularly in view of the fact that a life lived in sin is going to lead to a life away from God, and it also has Big ramifications for the people around us that we can cause to stumble. Well, finally, Jesus calls upon us to have God's attitude to the little ones. And the little ones aren't just children at this point. It seems that they're, it's branching out. It might include all kinds of people who are in lowly circumstances. Let's pick this up. It says um, in verse 10, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, For I tell you that there are angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Well, the significant thing about God is that he's not like us. Uh, In the Bible, people are reminded they can't look upon God and live because God is holy and majestic. He's awesome. We lose something of the awesomeness of God, particularly even when we use language about baked beans or things like that being awesome. But God is awesome and what his baked beans aren't. But when angels in the past, like in Isaiah chapter 6, had seen God, uh, there's one image in Isaiah 6 where the angels have six wings, two they covered their feet with for reasons which are obscure to us, and two of their wings they used to cover their eyes. Uh, The other two they used to fly around. And how they didn't crash into each other is a good, good question. But the bottom line is those angels that served God, they weren't allowed to even gaze upon God. But what Jesus is saying here is these little ones have such important guardian angels that they look on God face to face. And their angels are important and that's how important the little ones are to God. Jesus goes on to reinforce this point about how important the little ones are by telling us the story about the lost sheep, which most of us are probably familiar with. We get the idea that God's not happy just to say, look, we've got the 99, uh, you know, Let's forget about that odd, silly one that's um, probably not worth very much anyway. No, that's not God's attitude. That lost one matters. And even as uh, we come to terms with that story about the Victoria Cross recipient, Mark Donaldson, we can think about that kind of story sounding a bit like a lost sheep story, can't we? Apparently he left his SAS crew... Uh, in the open ground to run 80 metres and go and save well, not quite a lost sheep but certainly a lost Afghani translator who could have been probably pretty woolly as well. He went out of his way to care for that person uh, because he mattered to him. And God's kingdom is like that. Greatness in God's kingdom is about caring for the needy. And in this story, Jesus is the hero. He's the one who comes into the world to seek and save lost people like us. He's the real hero. Because it wasn't Mark Donaldson who came to save us, it was Jesus. He's come to lay down his life and to rise again for our sin. He dies in our place, that we might be forgiven. And God calls on us, now that we've been saved, now that we enjoy life with him, to take his attitude to the lowly, Take a very positive attitude, not to despise the little and lowly, but to care for them. And so from this sermon, the take-home message really is that greatness is about looking beyond ourselves. It's not about lording it over people, is it? It's about depending upon God in the first place. That's what greatness is about. It's not trusting in my own strength as a solo man or something like that. It's about living with a dependence on God. And it's about caring for the ones that God cares for. The ones that our society forgets and puts on the scrap heap, we've got to look after the ones that aren't valued because God values them. Well, this week, may we uh, be people who grow in our trust in God and also be people who care, especially for the little ones and for the lowly. Let's ask God to help us to do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that... Uh, in your kindness, you haven't left us in the lurch, That you did send Jesus into the world as the one who comes to seek and save the lost. We thank you that in our helplessness and in our sin, Jesus laid down his life for us, only to take it up again that he might pour out your spirit into us and give us new life with you. Father, we thank you that we can enjoy that great assurance of forgiveness and the freedom from guilt that we have and We know that you are kind and loving and that we can turn back to you and you do forgive us. Father, as we live, we pray that you would help us not to have the world's attitude towards greatness. Help us not to go it alone without you, but instead to put our trust in you and live with you as our God of our lives. And Father, we pray that you would help us see greatness your way and to care for the little ones, for children and for other people who are lowly in a world that doesn't always value the the lowly ones and the forgotten people. Please help us to be uh, different and to care for them like you do. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.